Welcome to Cinema Woman. I'm your host, David. And, you know, since it's the first week of October, that means that it's time to break down the best and the worst of the films that we screened here at Cinema Wellman during the month of September. As usual, there were a half dozen good movies that we're here to praise and five that we're here to bury. You know where we're going to start, so get your shovel and let's get to it. Let's go to 1969 and The Devil's Eight. Are you familiar with Christopher George? If so, it's most likely because you remember The Rat Patrol, which was a World War II action TV series, or Tattletales, which was a game show in the 70s featuring celebrity couples. His wife was the delightful Linda Day George. And I was jealous of him watching Tattletales. Not as jealous as I was of Bobby Van, but I was jealous of Christopher George. But if you know Christopher George from The Devil's Eight, you have my apologies. This is Dirty Dozen Light as George plays Ray, a federal agent who rounds up eight convicts to help fight, wait for it, a vicious moonshine gang. Maybe it was more like the Dirty Dozen of Hazard. The only thing missing was Boss Hogg, and his appearance in this film would have been an improvement. Pop star Fabian shows up as a drunk convict. He cannot play drunk. He cannot play sober either, for that matter. It is very difficult to play drunk. Even quality actors and actresses have a hard time playing drunk. Fabian is not a quality actor for those of you keeping score at home. Linda Day George shows up as Ray's girlfriend for about 90 seconds. I swear she just showed up on on the set one day to visit him, and they shot it and put it in the movie. Next, from 1971, we have Chrome and Hot Leather. Let's have IMDb take a shot at what passes for a plot in this one. Here we go. A Green Beret returns home from Vietnam to find that a gang of murderous bikers have killed his fiancée. He calls on several of his Green Beret buddies to come and help him take revenge on the gang. Now, I've seen an awful lot of movies about supposedly viciously nasty, violent bikers. Most of these gangs, Mad Max being an exception aren't any more intimidating than a group of high schoolers causing a ruckus at a dance. It's hysterical how the townspeople run for cover when the bikers show even a small touch of belligerence. Law enforcement never seems to be able to handle what amounts to misdemeanor mischief. The only reason I watched this is because TJ, the leader of the biker gang, was played by William Smith. I love William Smith, even though he usually played the same exact character in every movie or television show that I've ever seen him in. He was in Richmond Poor Man. He was Falconetti in that. If you've seen that, you know who I'm talking about. He was fantastic. Um, But a better title for this would have been Chrome and Hot Garbage. But I have to admit that a line by Smith had me laughing out loud. So TJ... William William Smith, is in the process of being, you know, a mean biker and roughing up someone in a bar as one of his minions, Gabriel, plays pinball. TJ says, Gabriel, and Gabriel looks up from the pinball machine and says, yeah. And TJ says, Gabriel, can't you see we're menacing someone? (laughs) That's fantastic. Brought me back to uh, Baltimore, um, where I was once menaced at someone's house. But anyway, that's tremendous. I, 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 it, it didn't keep, that line didn't keep this junk off the horse list, but it was a very tiny positive from hot leather and chrome or hot chrome and leather. 
or whatever it's called. Next, from 2017, we have Gemini. When we run over, I mean, run through the worst of the month, I always warn that there may be spoilers. I don't mind spoiling these awful films because that saves you the trouble of watching them. And you can watch them if you want to, to see how bad they are. So spoilers will follow. Uh, If you know your astrological signs, you know that Gemini is represented by twins. And that's all you need to know to totally figure out the plot of this mystery, suspense, thriller that features none of those items. Zoe Kravitz, who I have nothing against, plays a Hollywood starlet. Lola Kirk plays her put-upon assistant. Are there no other types of assistants in films? Can't there be like a... An assistant that's like a normal friend that can be like, I don't know, forget it. Uh, The pair run into a fan at a restaurant who resembles Kravitz. And the fan is, she's pushy, but she's not quite a stalker. Now, I'm not sure of the the time frame, but about the 20-minute mark, Zoe Kravitz's character is dead. No, no, she's not. She's one of the leads. She's not dead. This was directed by Aaron Katz, not Alfred Hitchcock. Only Hitchcock kills off leads 20 minutes into a movie. I thought when I watched it that she killed the fan and passed her body off as herself and was now hiding from the world. You know, celebrity and all. I wasn't supposed to figure out any of that after 20 minutes. I'm no film genius, but this story is as transparent as Barbarella's Brazier. The worst part is that her assistant is being blamed for her murder, and she doesn't seem all that upset about it. And then the lead detective just shows up nonchalantly and mentions that the case is closed to both of them. But somebody needs to go to jail, don't they? Someone was murdered. Mm, celebrity and all. Next, from 2016, The Bad Batch. Do you enjoy incoherent movies about cannibalism? How about movies that deal with an extra cringy Stockholm Syndrome love between a super creepy Jason Momoa and a double amputee? What about movies with extremely brief star power cameo appearances, Keanu Reeves, Jim Carrey, whose characters are more interesting than anything else in this movie? If you said yes to any of these questions, I believe you may be in need of some professional help. And it's all good. Professional help is always good. But you also could probably enjoy this dystopian dumpster load of a film. Did I mention that the cannibals cut off the limbs, they cauterize the wounds with a skillet, and then they keep the people alive for future meals? They're chained up all over the place, missing arms and legs and everything. That's how Jason Momoa ends up with the double amputee. Oh, and he's he's raising a daughter in this environment. <laughs> As I write this, I'm, you know, I think I'm, what could be possibly worse than The Bad Batch? I give you from 2022, Margot. Margot is an extremely dumb movie about some moronic college kids who rent a smart house for the weekend. I have a ton of problems with this trash heap, starting with the smartness of the house. Now... I'm not that tech savvy. I'm not totally sure what smart houses are capable of these days. But Margot appears, it appears to take place in present day. So I'm thinking that a smart house would be all totally wired up, souped up Wi-Fi coverage everywhere, 
automated everything along with the ability to you know control the lights, the thermostat and the music system and other things all from your phone. House alarm things like that, security. I'm sure they do more than that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that smart houses today don't come equipped with huge 3D printers capable of recreating any item from anywhere in time and and it can also create clones of the guests. Murderous clones, of course. The movie is titled Margot because that's the Alexa, Siri, etc. that runs the house. She starts out nice, and she ends up all about the murder. The only interesting thing in this movie, which was insultingly stupid, is that the filmmakers got Susan Bennett to voice Margot. Susan Bennett was the original voice of Siri, so kudos for that. She was actually the best actor of them all. The rest of this movie shouldn't be watched by anyone at any time or any place. Um, So what's good in a month that featured all of that trash? Well, we have a half dozen that you might be interested in seeing. Starting with one of those Netflix comedies that they seem to churn out on a daily basis. This is from 2023 or probably three hours ago. The Outlaws. Now, I got to start by saying that sometimes you're just in the right mood for a goofy, silly movie. It's the right movie at the perfect time, and you end up liking it, even though it's not as good as you think it was. The Outlaws is a perfect example of that. This is from IMDb. A straight-laced bank manager is about to marry the love of his life. When his bank is held up by the infamous ghost bandits during his wedding week, he believes his future in-laws, who just arrived in town, are the infamous Outlaws. The young couple, Parker and Owen, are played by Nina Dobrev and Adam Devine. They are fine, but their parents are even better. Owen's parents are played by Julie Haggerty, remember Airplane, and Richard Kind. And if you don't know who Richard Kind is, just Google him, and when you see his face, you'll go, I know Richard Kind. Um, While the outlaws are played by Ellen Barkin and Pierce Brosnan. Barkin and Brosnan are the best part of this movie, in my opinion. The story and the script, they're not perfect, but there are some pretty funny moments, including when Barkin mentions James Bond. And Brosnan asks, which one? When she replies, the fifth, he answers with, that was a good one. I I laughed and tipped my hat. I mean, Brosnan, of course, was the fifth Bond. Um, For some reason, the humor is a little profane at times. This doesn't bother me per se, but it seemed out of place in this story and in the movie, really. Um, But if you have 95 minutes to kill and want to have a couple of laughs, check out The Outlaws. Next, from 2023, we have Gold Brick. Gold Brick is a French heist comedy drama. I love heist movies a lot. I've seen a ton of heist movies, but Gold Brick is the first one I've seen where the item being stolen is perfume. An unhappy factory worker stuck in a thankless job decides to profit from stealing perfume and selling it on the black market. I liked Gold Brick because of the overall scheme they concocted and how they figured out they could take a certain amount of perfume without it even being noticed. It was also interesting to see the inside of a perfume factory. I had no idea what went on in there. And now I do. Not necessarily the theft part, of course. Uh, The thieves are put upon enough by their asshole bosses that you're rooting for them to pull it off all in the end. Um, I could never work in a perfume factory. I have a feeling the smell would make my head explode. 
I'm not a fan of strong smells. Hard to believe I taught middle school for 33 years. Next, from 1961, we have Flight That Disappeared. As I've mentioned before, I love the start of the month because TCM releases what they have for me to choose from for the next four weeks. I've grown accustomed to DVRing anything and everything that looks interesting that I haven't seen already. Sometimes I'm let down, but other times I'm pleasantly surprised. Flight That Disappeared was one of those pleasant surprises. It's a B-movie with a B-movie length of 71 minutes and a cast of nobody you've ever heard of. Sounds good to me. IMDb describes this sci-fi fantasy as follows. A cross-country airliner whose passengers include a nuclear physicist, a rocket expert, and a mathematical genius is drawn beyond radar range by an unknown, unbreakable force. What makes Flight That Disappeared different from your run-of-the-mill air disaster movie is where the plane ends up. The airliner, with all of its crew and special science passengers, is taken to another world where humanity is pretty much put on trial for war, uh, especially atomic, by a panel of otherworldly beings led by the sage. So this is made in 1961, so this is post-World War II, and it's straight in the teeth of the Cold War. And it has humans being intercepted intercepted by aliens and, you know, put on trial for war. It's not the first time we've been put on trial by aliens in the movies, but it's always worth a watch to see what they decide to do with us. It's a perfect example of how good a B-movie can really be. Next, from 2019, Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine. If you were to ask 100 people to name a music magazine, chances are that a vast majority of them would respond with Rolling Stone. That would be my answer. I had a subscription to Rolling Stone from high school to fatherhood, and I took a lot of what I read in its pages as gospel. Not only did they cover music, they dealt with politics, movies, pop culture, and the counterculture. I thought it was really cool to be a Rolling Stone reader and subscriber. In hindsight, I wish I was also a subscriber to Cream. Also named after a famous band, and spelled incorrectly, they did that to give the middle finger to Rolling Stone, actually. Cream was a magazine that I honestly could never figure out. Boy, howdy, was it filled with insane pictures of rock stars. Most of them were post-concert, behind-the-scenes shots, and the rock stars drinking beer labeled Boy Howdy, and that was Cream's mascot logo. Cream also seemed to be really funny, which I didn't know how to take being a Rolling Stone reader. I don't think I was a snob, but I guess I did look down on Cream as a substandard version of the magazine that I subscribed to. Turns out that they loved that reputation and thrived off of it. They didn't give shit one about what Rolling Stone was doing. This documentary about the Detroit-based music magazine that was in print from 1969 to 1989 has an attitude that perfectly matches the printed product. And we get some Lester Bangs. Bangs, the famed music critic, critic played by Philip Seymour Hoffman and almost famous, was editor of Cream magazine from 1971 to 1976. Boy, howdy, this is quite a story. And it's a must for music fans. Next. From 2023, No One Will Save You. Now, this movie was recommended to me by 
by my work friend, Courtney. And I was texting her while I watched. And my messages had a lot of those emo- emojis with the big wide eyes. And thank you for the suggestion, Courtney. And she was excited that I liked it. It's always fun to recommend a movie to somebody. And they come back with, wow, I really like that. That's that's great. Um, and this was a lot of fun for a variety of reasons. IMDb says this. An exiled, anxiety-ridden homebody must battle an alien who's found its way into her home. This is some creepy stuff. They do explain why the young woman named Bryn, played by the talented Caitlin Deaver, is exiled and why she has anxiety. There's a good amount of character development into a tragic event in Bryn's past that has greatly impacted her life. And they pull all this off without dialogue. This is virtually a silent movie. There are a total of about eight words spoken in the entire film. It reminded me of a favorite Twilight Zone episode of mine titled The Invaders, in which an old woman, played by dear friend of cinema wellman Agnes Moorhead, in a deserted cabin, fights off a tiny alien who has made its way into her home. That also had no dialogue. Oh, and the aliens in No One Will Save You are cool and super creepy, especially the noises they make. The closed captions describe this sound as chittering, and it makes my skin crawl. The filmmakers base the look of the aliens on the composite description of all those people who were abducted back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That was prime alien abduction time there, my friends. You know, with all the new discussion of aliens, why the slowdown in the abductions, guys? Do you have all the information you need to know about us from our phones? Like the government? I enjoyed this so much that I plan on watching it later again this month. And that leaves us with only one movie left, which means that that's the best movie we screened here at Cinema Wellman. Actually, this one was screened at O'Neill Cinemas in Littleton. I'll explain that. During the month of September. And it's from 2023. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see what I'm wearing. And I'm wearing pink. And it's Barbie. Uh, It's now official in the book of Cinema Wellman. Greta Gerwig can do no wrong. She has directed three films so far, The Tremendous Lady Bird, a phenomenal version of Little Women, and now Barbie. I will see anything she directs going forward in her career, and I don't say that about too many directors. Not even Spielberg gets that kind of respect around here. Barbie's only the second movie I've seen in a theater since the pandemic. I'm obviously in no hurry to return since my home theater is more than adequate. Seeing Barbie in the theater was actually a work field trip, and I just want to share that little story with you. My department had been working for several days without air conditioning. We're on the second floor, and, you know, heat does rise. And it got pretty warm, but we still did our job, and nobody really complained that much. My boss, Renee, then told us on a Thursday that since we were doing such a great job under such difficult conditions that her boss, Brittany, wanted to treat us to something fun. So we punched out at 1 o'clock and got paid until 3.30, and we went to the movies, and they paid for our movie and all of our snacks. So a big thank you to the good people at Sanctuary Medicinals for looking out for us and wanting us to be happy. Sanctuary Medicinals. Find your sanctuary. Uh, Not a sponsor. (laughs) Yet. Now back to Barbie. I knew I was in for a treat when Gerwig opened the movie with an homage to the opening scene of 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
And that's one of the greatest opening scenes in film history. I saw that recently somewhere. I know. Barbie is visually stunning. All the sets were hand-painted without, there's no di- digital effects in this. And all that pink, that was fantastic. Margot Robbie had a rule on set that every day, every member of the cast and crew had to wear something pink. I just love that. That would have been a fun film to work on. I read also that Margot Robbie's Barbie is 23% larger than everything surrounding her in Barbie land. This was done to mimic the disproportionate scales of the Barbie and Ken dolls with their play sets. And if you've ever played with a Barbie doll, you know that's the truth. She was always bigger than the car. This is the wrong size car for her, and it was was her car. Um, I love when filmmakers have that much attention to detail in their films. You may have read some negative statements about the message of the film, and I'm here to call total bullshit on that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the message, and it should be heard by every young woman on the planet. America Ferreira's monologue towards the end of the film was absolutely tremendous. She tried to explain just some of the difficulties women face on a daily basis all around the world just because they are women. It was a tremendously, tremendously passionate and empowering speech that affected me deeply. And I'm an old white man. The message is the truth, and my age, skin color, and sex are not barriers when it comes to the truth. Just because it has a serious message behind it doesn't mean it's not great fun. This movie is a blast from start to finish. And the research that was done into the Barbie-verse is so impressive. I recognize so many of the other dolls, the dogs, the sets, the play sets, the slides, the cars, everything. uh, Because Vanessa had Barbies growing up. I'm not sure if she had a Ken, but he's actually an accessory here. Barbie don't need Ken. This is Barbie's Playhouse. And that's it. That's a wrap for Cinema Wellman's Best and Worst of September. We hope you join us again next week for our Halloween episode. I know it's early, but next Friday is Friday the 13th, so we're going to rank all 12 of the movies in that series. (laughs) From worst to best. If there is a best, that is. (laughs) So until then, take care. And uh, go birds.